So, uh, so that's that's my uh, number eight. Oh my gosh! All right, my number seven. Okay. Did you say your number eight already? Yeah, it was Zodiac. Zodiac. Okay, can my I, number seven, which I hope is on your top ten list, is Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. That is not on my top ten. That oh, is my. number sixteen. Wow, really? Yeah, I'm sorry. No, you know what? I shouldn't be surprised. A lot of people don't like this movie. Hang on now. I didn't say I didn't like it. But a lot of people don't love it as much as I did. That's true. Uh, and this it, it, all, it works in a, in a way as a companion piece to a film I'm going to talk about later mm-hmm. that's higher in the list. Um, I guess the, the biggest complaint I've heard about this movie is its, is its coldness, its distance from the characters. Right. Um, and that, that, that doesn't bother me. Uh, because the film is about, it's, it, it confronts head on the fact that there are people in our world who are so rotten that they are beyond help, Yeah, which is a, not a very liberal point of view to take, but there is nothing redeeming about these people. Yeah. Uh, and their stupid, selfish, violent acts spill over into the world. Yeah. And this film, uh, is, is quite cynical in saying that this is going to happen. That this happens in our world, and these people exist, and we're going to. Ha- we shouldn't deny it. Yeah, and it does a a really good job. Like the first scene has you know Philip Seymour Hoffman and Marissa Tomei, and they're having sex. They're a married couple. There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. It's okay. what I mean is like there's no adultery going on. There's right. no affairs okay, happening. That's for later. Um, but so it's just. And it's exciting, you know. In movies, you so rarely see married people having sex. I just I know that sounds weird, but you don't yeah. see it very often. Anyway, um, but then afterwards, like they're just they're happy and they're having fun. They're on vacation, and they just start thinking like, and it's clear like this is what they want, and there's n- nothing wrong with that. They want to be happily married and relaxed, you know. And so it starts with that scene, and you're like, oh man, this is great. And then the very next scene is this horrible robbery yeah. and you realize that oh man this the char- it's important that the character starts with a sympathetic goal but then you see how this character actually how his first instinct to go about achieving that is wrong yeah morally and it's done incorrectly as well okay um and the uh, I don't, what do you what do you make of the the fractured timeline um i i like it and uh so do i and I, I know that uh, there are some people, some listeners of the podcast, in fact, that uh, have a problem with like the weird kind of transition. And it oh, is a very I like those a lot. It is a very jarring transition. And the way I see it is the transition are the transitions are supposed to be jarring, like because you're you know it'll tell this person's story, it's going along, and then it'll stop and do this really weird thing and where jump it'll back. switch back and forth from what it's about to show, right? And then jump into it. And I think the best analogy I can think for it is is when a mirror is shattered, mm-hmm. in the different pieces, you will see the same images repeated. Right. And that's sort of what that looks like. Those switching back yeah. and forth is like the camera is panning over a shattered mirror. And, uh, as, and, and as a function of it, of it being so jarring, it's almost as if whoever's telling the story, there's no real nar- narration or anything. But like the storyteller is saying, like, hang on now. There's more to the story. Let's go back. Like uh-huh. he's refusing you... You know, it's like you want to keep going forward, but he's saying, no, there's more to the story. Let's go back and I'll tell you. Like, 
and it just keeps happening that way. And and so I like I like the the fractured nature of it, which okay. I usually don't care for, but uh, but I liked it in this. All right. Well, uh, what's your, what's your number number seven? I guess uh, it it is once. Uh, okay. Well, let's talk about something okay. real quick. All right. You and I have different rules in making lists. All right. Because at least I don't know. You know, uh, for I don't know. I can't speak for you. For me, I, I th- when I make my list, I think th- I think of myself as making it for myself for posterity. Okay. Which is why you know this list isn't done now. I'll still. You know, at this point in my life, if I see something from 2002 that I hadn't seen, yeah. I put it on the list. Yeah. And therefore, my rules for what qualifies is not when I saw it or when it got a wide release, right. but its first premiere. Yeah. Once premiered, technically, in 2006. Oh, I guess at, that's true. At yeah. a film festival. I can't remember which one. Uh, so, for me, it doesn't qualify. Okay. Even though, t- I mean... In the right here and now, everyone really thinks of it as a 2007 film, particularly yeah. here in America, you know. Uh, but um, uh, for posterity, it's a 2006 film, and that's where it you know, where it belongs on my list. So it's, uh, those are just my rules. Okay. And and it was a similar thing, you and I, uh, you know, when we discussed... Oh, we didn't actually discuss our favorite movies of 2006. We didn't discuss that where people could hear it. Right. We did that in a trial run, but uh, <laughs> thank you for smoking was much the same way that it was on my list, but you considered it a 2005 because it, it you know, in a, in a way it was, I mean, it, not that it would have made my top 10 anyway. Right. Right. But still, um, okay. So that said, uh, yeah, once is on my list and, uh, and it's just, a, uh, it's everything. Okay. I don't usually care for musicals, uh, because of the things I look for in movies. And uh, one of the things I look for is subtlety, and it manages to be a subtle musical, which is lots of fun for me, yeah. with, and this is important, great music. You know what I mean? Um, and it's all about a musician who, throughout the movie, everybody says, wow, these are really good songs. And as you and I have discussed in the past, those songs better be good. And yeah. man, are they. And uh, and just the relation, and the way the songs are used to uh talk you know to illustrate what these characters are thinking and feeling about the past and about the future and hey the present why not um and just the you know it's it really is a true musical even if you know it's not people bursting into song like in Sweeney Todd or whatever um so yeah uh it's just and the relationship between the characters is completely believable it's never forced uh and it's just a yeah it's just a incredibly by the time I got around to seeing it, it had been hyped so much, and uh, and thank and it more than lived up to the hype. I thought. Okay, and uh, we talked about this movie a few weeks ago for yeah, some reason. Yeah. I can't remember why. So because uh, I had just seen it, I think. Okay, and yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, another thing that I really like about it that I think I mentioned two weeks ago is the um, is the equality between the two characters. Right. It's not like a a male lead and then the you know the love interest. You right. know, it's two equal characters. And I, I have since uh, we we since uh, have uh, purchased the soundtrack, and you listen to it, and I think it is notable that you know most of the songs are you know uh, the lead vocals are male, mm-hmm. but there's like two or three songs where the lead vocals are female, and they are every bit as strong, yeah, as uh, as okay. his. So yeah, it's uh, even in the music that carries over. So, all right. So, what are we on to now? Uh, my number six. This oh my is going to be kind of a long episode. That's okay, everybody. Yeah, it's the year-end extravaganza. Why am I telling the, uh, the listeners it's okay? Yeah, 
We're telling them. Then how I have to, to listen to it all in one sitting. I rarely listen to a podcast all in one sitting. I'm a busy man. That's true. I stay up very late, and that's when I listen to them. So, uh, my number six is Eastern Promises. Okay, is that on your list? It is. Uh, let's see. It is like in my top twenty. Wow, man! So. You, know, you and I disagreed a lot. Hang on now. I will. Uh, okay, it's still a really solid movie. There's just it, as you know, as I've said. Oh, it yeah. makes it makes a decision. Yeah, you it, have a really silly objection to this movie. It's not that silly. I think it's perfectly but I know, reasonable. I think this is actually a good entry point in discussing the movie. Yeah. Um, so we're going to give away a spoiler here. Okay. Uh, because it's the only way to discuss this. Right. The, uh, our, our difference in opinion. Um, so, spoilers. If you don't want to hear the spoilers of Eastern Promises, pause now and fast forward, say... Three and a half minutes, and this is a big yeah. This is a big spoiler of a recent movie. So yeah, seriously, <laughs> move past this. Okay, here we go. Viggo Mortensen, who is presented as a gangster in the movie, yeah. turns out to be an undercover cop. Right. Um. This was your problem in, with the film. So well, it, I, it, it, tell me that why that is. First. Well, that's the thing is, I, and then I, I'll rebut. I don't necessarily think of it as a flaw. It's just they made a decision. And I would have, you know, I would have responded more to the movie had they kept him as a gang- as a noble gangster who, nonetheless, can still kill very easily, and you know, and can still do somewhat unspeakable things, but still has this odd nobility and is quickly rising through the ranks. Like, but he doesn't. The thing is, at no point is it, is his. Uh, morality really compromised for me in the movie. I mean, he cuts up a dead body that's already dead. That's true. Uh, that's unsavory, I guess. Yeah. But I don't think that that makes him... That doesn't really make him... Uh, 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 that doesn't present a dichotomy to me. Well, I guess for me, just the idea like um, that he does it in such an unblinking way, you know? And like, And for me, just the idea, it's like, well, why would a guy who does have this moral code... Why would he be in this in the first place? Because sooner or later, he's going to have to do something he does not want to do. He does kill people in self-defense. But Eventually, yeah. why would he be in there if he, didn't, if he doesn't like doing this kind of thing? Now, of course, if he's a cop, it all makes perfect sense. Everything falls into place. But if he's not, then it makes the character very ambiguous and, very, and just very puzzling. And, and that's the thing is... I would have preferred the character to be that. Now, making him a cop is still complex, but it takes it in a different direction. And it's just a function of what I would have responded more to. And so I don't dislike the movie. It's yeah. just if that scene had been taken out, I think I would have. I think it probably would have made it in my top ten because this is – please please remember, I, this I is a top ten of preference, not of what I think is the best. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. But I see – to me, if they hadn't made him a cop, he would have been. Uh, I, I I would have liked the movie less because he w- it would have made him somewhat hypocritical. That mm-hmm. he is uh, somewhat. I mean, at the end, uh, hopefully you're still fast forwarded. Uh, he's <laughs> he's somewhat heroic. Yeah. And I, I if if he were just a gangster, I don't have a lot of respect for the gangster. No, not okay? at all. Uh, and I would have found it hypocritical, so I think it's it's better for for the film if he's a cop. Which, by the way, it didn't seem that big of a twist to me from the minute that uh, 
they found out that the prostitute that he had uh, been forced to sleep with, mm. you know, uh, was taken away by the cops. Yeah. It clicked in my head. I was like, oh, he's, oh, yeah. he's probably undercover. Um, so it didn't seem like that big a twist to me. And I guess to me, like, him being a hypocrite, it's like most gangsters are hypocrites. Like, the idea Yeah, but that, that doesn't make it okay. Well, no, not at all. I, I just... You know, I, I like character. I like characters that I don't like. That sounds odd, but no. But I see what you're saying. You know, and uh, but I like liking this character. Oh, okay, all right. I mean, I w- That's the thing is like, you know, I mean, you like Tony Soprano, you like Michael Corleone, but they are hypocrites. I mean, such is the nature of the life that they're choosing. And yeah, just, definitely. And so, that's the thing is. I would have liked it to go in, you know, in that direction. But you just listed a couple of things where that's clearly that's been done. That's true. This this walks a really thin line without ever compromising itself. Yeah, and that, I think that's why I like it. And I will say this: that 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 final shot where it's basically just him sitting alone and uh-huh. he is quickly rising up the ranks. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, making him like in either of our scenarios. You know, like if it turns out that he is just this noble guy or if he's a cop, either way, that last shot is very, it's very telling because either way he knows like this is going to get much, much worse for me. I'm going to have to do some things I'm really not looking forward to, you know, and if he's a cop, even more so. Um, So, yeah, but I, I, to me, I come to the movie really believing that he can, I, I was glad that it's a movie I really liked him and I was rooting for him. Like he's mm-hmm. he's the art house John McClane for me. <laughs> and I would like to see I would like to see a sequel to this movie where he he does continue to rise and he continues to hold on to his morality. Now do you think now I will I, I asked this uh when Jen and I went to see it, um you know, he's got all those tattoos and he's telling the stories behind them. Uh do you think those stories are real? Or do you think that's the little, you know, that's the character that he's created. I assumed it was a character. Okay. See, and I, I thought that uh, it possibly could be real. Like maybe that's why this guy is trying to do something different. I think why you just tra- want all your characters to have a dark side. Yes, I do. Um, <laughs> all right. But anyway, What's either way, six? there's something that. Okay. From a cop point of view, like. There's something that keeps him in this, you know, like I, he is a Russian guy and there's something in him that really he will do what he's got to do to bring this organization down because he clearly has something against it. Um, and I like that aspect to it. So okay. anyway, number six for you. Number six. Um, there will be blood. Really? Yeah. Uh, well, should we just save that then? Yes. Okay. So, number five for me, uh, which I'm certain is not in your top ten, but I know you've seen. Uh, well, here's the thing. As uh, very loyal listeners know from episode two, mm-hmm. I love children's movies. Okay. Good children's movies. Yeah. And I saw a few this year that were quite good. One that was a real disappointment. That would be The Last Mimsy. Right. Very disappointing. Uh, I saw The Water Horse, mm-hmm. which I liked a lot. Uh, Enchanted, which you've talked about, I liked uh, a lot. Right. Uh, but the one... Uh, that that hit me the hardest, that meant the most to me, was Bridge to Terabithia. Yeah. So that's my number five film of the year. Um, and it's the same company, Walden Media, who made uh, who made The Water Horse, and who also made uh, things like Holes and uh, the Narnia movie. Right. Um, and as we talked about in episode two, uh, I really like what Walden Media does. Yeah. They're really... 
they're really honest with their audience who are meaning children yeah they don't there's no pandering in their films at all no it it understands the way kids see the world and it understands that there's a that there's a blend between the naivete of a, of a child and an understanding that kids often don't get credit for right and Bridget Terabithia uh deals with things like grief and uh and uh, uh, an ambiguous parental relationship, you know, that's, uh, you know, he's he, like the kid's father is not an absent father like you get in a lot of kids' movies, you know, mm-hmm. but he's not uh, a super doting father like, right. like I assume John Cusack and Martian Child. Not that I didn't see it, but that's sort of what I'm thinking. Uh, that he's just not a perfect father, but he's not right. a bad father either. And, and, uh, the seriousness and complexity with which it approaches that and the storyline about grief. Uh, which really hit home for me. Um, yeah. I was really impressed uh, by all things. Yeah, uh, it is not very high on my list. And uh, frankly, it's a movie that is uh, buried pretty low. But, you know, that's the thing is with my list, I can always re- reevaluate. And, you know, thinking about it, I can't, you know, there's not much wrong with it, you know, I can't, and I do still like it, so it probably will rise, I, I didn't, I don't actually have the numbers, but I don't know where it is, um, but yeah, I uh, I will tell this story, it is a very touching movie, and it really is, it's a tearjerker that freaking earns it, and uh, I, <laughs> I saw it on a plane, uh, and I was wedged, and it was a very large plane, I was wedged in the middle uh, of like a five, you know, the five seat middle section of a, of a, of an airplane. And, um, so I was, uh, I was basically fighting back tears as I'm watching this with just strangers all around me. And I'm, I'm an embarrassing crier. I, I sound really silly and effeminate and all that. Um, and so I'm just choking back these tears. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it just, the the way that it explores um childlike grief um and just the way that that kind of thing can sort of catapult you towards adulthood maybe not into it because you're still approaching it from a the you know mindset of a kid um it really just felt very uh very true and uh it's just yeah, it was a, a very good movie, and I, I liked it uh, quite a bit. So, um, is it my turn now, David? Well, you know, one time I was uh, stuck on in the middle section of a plane watching a movie, and that movie was uh, Hanging Up. <laughs> and I think I was fighting back uh, laughter at, uh, at how ridiculously stupid that movie was. Or just rage. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Try not to punch the seat in front of me. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So, so, yeah, you're number five. Uh, 310 to Yuma. Another one from the uh, honorable mentions that I didn't mention because I was pretty sure it was on your list. Um, Yeah, uh, I'm surprised it made my top 10, but I just kept loving it. The more I thought of it, the more I'm like, man, that's good. It's just a a good old-fashioned Western. You know, I mean, many movies, including my favorite movie of 2006, The Proposition, um, Many modern westerns will try to almost apologize for the violence uh, in a western, and, and granted, not, not, not even just not the, apologize. Maybe the that's violence, the wrong word. Though it's, I think what they try to apologize for is the 
almost old-fashioned look at at manliness. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah, just like the sto- like you know, the old John Wayne stoicism of the Western, like kind of informed what masculinity was at the time. It's just like you know, you don't you hold back your emotions and and you're that you know the whole time. Um, you don't let anyone see what you're thinking or feeling. And a lot of movies these days, like, kind of reevaluates with a modern uh, mindset. Now, with 310 to Yuma, it still it has some of that, but it just still feels like an old-fashioned western with like where gunfights are very violent, but still somewhat thrilling. Yeah. Um, and uh, Christian Bale's character is just a really both him and both he and Russell Crowe just do uh, great jobs, and they've got a lot to work with. Both characters are very strong uh, and intelligent, and both have very clear motivations. Uh, but they're not clear from the get-go. They reveal themselves over time. Plus, uh, David and I have discussed this a great deal. Uh, ben Foster, as uh, yeah. Russell Crowe's right-hand man, he when I think of that movie, I mean he is he's one of the big things I think of. I mean, he holds his own, you know, next to these two kind of acting powerhouses. And uh, he's just he's just great. He doesn't try to play more than what the character is. He's just blindly loyal and crazy. That's all, that's all he's got to work with. So he doesn't try to inform, you know, he doesn't try to, like, make him into, like, this self-doubting kind of, you know, guy. He just plays him the way he needs to be played in a very old school like Jack Palance kind of way. Yeah. And uh But I mean he's loyal in a way that he's almost he he's almost in love with. Yeah. Yeah. But the movie again in its sort of old-fashioned storytelling it doesn't hit that too hard, you know. Right. You could I think from an academic standpoint you could come away saying maybe this character is gay. Yeah. You know. Uh and wouldn't I mean at that point in history, probably wouldn't have identified as such, right? Uh, and wouldn't, and definitely would, but also definitely be trying to hide that. Yeah, I mean it, that's the thing. He could be gay. You could just as easily come away and just say like, "Oh, well, Charlie Wade is a father figure." No, not Charlie Wade. Yeah. Ben Wade. Sorry, Ben Wade is Ben Wade and Charlie Prince. Yeah, Charlie Prince okay. is, is Ben Foster's um, character. Yeah, oh, you there's, know, no, there's two Bens. And, yeah, it's uh. oh man, very frustrating. Um, but yeah, and it's just, uh, it's just a really really good movie and just uh and also just a lot of fun so that's my number five okay number four for me okay is control okay which i haven't seen um which is the the film about ian curtis okay who was the lead singer of joy division right who as we know from 24-hour party people and from uh being uh rock and roll geeks um <laughs> killed himself yeah. uh, on the eve of Joy Division's first American tour. Um, and this movie, certainly a story like that, and a figure like that who's been so uh, lionized, you know, by 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 rock fans because of because that's just such an almost mythic type of story. Uh, this movie does it certainly would run the risk of being too. Uh, too too glorifying or too sad sack or whatever, mm-hmm. but uh, you, uh, I, I would recommend this movie to anyone who whether they know uh, who Joy Division is or even if they don't like Joy Division, yeah. it's just a really great movie, a really great character study. And uh, again, we've talked about Casey Affleck coming into his own. 
Uh, we talked about Ben Foster. Uh, yeah. uh, I want to talk about Sam Riley, who I didn't really know much about. Uh, he he uh, had a very small role in 24-Hour Party People, actually. Yeah. Uh, but he's amazing. Uh, as in, in, I think there are temptations when you're showing uh, someone when you're showing someone who is uh, mentally tortured or whatever, you know, has some sort of, uh, you know, manic depression or whatever, whatever he had. Mm-hmm. When you're showing someone like that, who you already know going in was a great artist. Yeah. There are temptations in how to play the character. You know, there, there are tortured artist cliches. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Sam Riley plays him as a, as a man, just a, a man with, with, a man who is depressed, yeah. who happens to be, uh, you know, a fantastic artist right. uh, and songwriter. But he, but uh, Sam Riley's Ian Curtis doesn't really believe that of himself. It's not that he, and he doesn't have these these uh, you know tragic doubts about himself either. Yeah, he's just a depressed guy. Yeah, and it. I mean, it's not just depressed. He's got, obviously got very, uh, you know, very, very complex problems in his head, uh, and and these are the forefront of the movie. Is what I'm trying to say. Uh, this psychological portrait mm-hmm. is what the movie's about. It's not. It's not a a, a rock biopic, really. Right. Right. Hmm. So that that's that's what I like to. And it was gorgeously, amazingly photographed in black and white. Yeah, I uh, yeah I uh, did not get a chance to see it, and, and I really wish that I had. But I, I am looking forward to it a great deal. Um, so we're on number four now, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh! I'm, Sorry, I'm losing my voice. I, I know. Like... Keep drinking your emergency, there, buddy. I finished it. Oh no! All right. <laughs> uh, my number four is Super Bad, which I like through Ten to Yuma. I did not expect it to crack the top ten, much less the top four. Um, but well, see, this now the tables are turned. That's seventeen for me. So okay, bad. all right, there we go. Um, yeah, and uh, you, re- you remember what I was saying about uh, the savages and how it's very difficult to adequately portray uh, a real relationship, and that's what I love about Superbad is that you know, in spite of all the crazy, uh, <laughs> crass lines and, and dialogue and situations and stuff, uh, the primary. Um, friendship between michael Sarah and jonah hill is abs- feels absolutely real um and and i like any comedy where most of the comedy is strictly like from dialogue from just people talking like mm. i mean when you think about when you hang out with your friends think of how much you laugh with them because you're just going back and forth saying you know funny things yeah that's no one where, has to fall down or exactly that's yeah, where most the of head. the that's where most of the comedy comes from in Superbad. Now, of course, there's the subplot of like McLovin and the two cops and all that, but and that's kind of that's kind of over the top and a little strange, but it's still funny. And even and most of the funny stuff in that just comes from oh yeah the stuff they say to each other. Yeah, like the two cops being honest about how awesome it is to be cops and how yeah. awesome it is to shoot stuff. Like it it's, it just feels like a very genuine, uh, just a very genuine movie with some just really very funny dialogue and uh and i know that it's not a great movie but i just have tremendous affection for it because i think it just it shows friendship you know especially friendship at that age uh it really shows it um in a realistic way so yeah super bad i'm just a big fan of it 
It's clear with Superbad and 310 to Yuma, you like movies about, about male relationships. I sure do. I'm not just talking about the possibly gay Ben Foster. Well, thanks for throwing that in. But I, I mean, like, 310 to Yuma has a number of different dynamics yeah. between male characters. Yeah. Uh, and uh, explores each one of them very honestly. But we already talked about that movie. Yeah. But that's what Superbad does as well. So, uh, quite telling. Okay. Number three for me is Gone Baby Gone. Okay. We already talked about it. But, yeah, number three for me. All right. So, that's how much I liked it. Number three for you? Zodiac. Number three (laughs) for me. (laughs) Wait, now, Zodiac was my number eight. What was your number eight? Eight was Gone Baby Gone. Wow. Man, oh, man. That was weird. Okay, now, here's the thing. I think maybe we should talk about your number two, and then I'll talk about my number two and one together, because I want to talk about my my one and two together. All right. Uh, Because I I think your number two is my number two, actually. Uh, Probably awesome. (laughs) Um, All right. My number two is No Country for Old Men. Same here. Okay. Um, Man. That is a movie that I... we, We have talked about that on the podcast as well, but it's just... It is it is a movie that I expected to be good. I did not expect it to be... I expected it to be really, really good. But it wound up being great in a different way than I was expecting. You know, it's just... It really is laid out like a novel. I mean, like, it really hits its peak. And then it's got about 15 more minutes of very meditative dialogue yeah. between characters that we haven't really seen or At spent least much 15. time with. Probably more. Yeah, and it's just... Uh, you know, and it, and it has such different tones, you know, like the tone of Javier Bardem's character is certainly not the tone of Tommy Lee Jones' character and his relationship to other people. Um, and it really, you know, and of course, I think the heart, uh, the heart of the movie is very much Tommy Lee Jones and just, and it's odd to see, you don't see it very often, like, but when you do see it, I, I love it. Like the character of the cop who does care, but is so damn exhausted by the horrible things that he's seen that he just seems to be kind of moseying through the crime, you know, like moseying through the story and just realize like, ah, oh, this is just one more damn thing that I'm going to have to try and forget if I'm going to get any sleep. Um, and it's just, you know, most, sometimes you'll see like the tired cop who can muster it up one last time and, and he wins, you know, and this is not that movie. Um, if anything, this is the story of a guy who finally has had too much and retires, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's also, uh, when I met, when I was talking about before the devil knows you're dead, I said that it had something in common with another one of the films on my list. And the one I was talking about is no country for old men. Yeah. Because, uh, they are films they're both films about a real world type of evil oh yes uh no no country for old men is maybe a bit more more specific and more drastic yeah whereas before the devil, devil knows you're dead is more is a more commonplace and banal type of evil evil yeah uh but they both have that same thing and the same problem that people have with before the devil knows you're dead some people have had with no country for old men that it uh it distances itself yeah uh, and I'll get into that in a second, actually. But okay, um, yeah, uh, Javier Bardem does a, a great job as the. Imbi- I mean, <laughs> literally, how it's it would be very difficult if someone's like, okay, this character you're playing is the embodiment of evil. Action! It's like <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to turn that into a somewhat real character. I mean, he seems he's almost supernatural. Uh-huh. Um, 
but you know he turns him into a, a real guy whose code of honor, if you want to call it that, nobody can figure out. And it's just, and he seems like a guy with just a very nihilistic point of view, and that seems to inform his decisions. Like he will kill somebody, a random person that he has, that he just met, not even somebody who's you know integral to the plot or integral uh-huh. um, to the plot, but like somebody he just meets at a store as he's buying like you know sesame seeds or something, <laughs> um, like. He just flips a coin, and if the coin lands a certain way, he has no problem with killing him. And you don't know why. And that's the thing, is he just he just really is, as David said, an evil character. And there's no reasoning with him. And there's and also slight spoilers, but you'll see where you'll you'll get it pretty quick. There's no stopping him. Like it's that's the thing, is it's a it's a very depressing movie, but it's you know, in in some of the themes, but it's one that I think is important because so many movies say that, you know what, if you tr- like, if the good guy is good enough, he can stop the bad guy, and some t- and in real life, you know, I'd say it's similar to the movie Funny Games. In real life, the bad guy does not always get stopped. Uh-huh. You know, sometimes he just even <laughs> the, at a certain point, uh, you know, a a. Something out of that no character consciously does to Javier Bardem. It just kind of happens. Uh, this accident befalls him, and he lives through that. And so it would seem even God can't kill this man. And uh, so that was there was a lot of spoilers there. Yeah, I'm sorry, everybody. Yeah, I'm gonna have to put that in the yeah in the in the description of the show. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to talk about number two and number one. Okay. Like I said, this is the sixth year in a row that yeah. I've made a list. And this is the first time that I even considered a tie. Okay. Um, as I've said, my number two is No Country for Old Men. My number one favorite film of the year, uh, drumroll or whatever, is There Will Be Blood. Okay. Uh, which it's which is weird because not quite to the degree of Fincher, but I've never been a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan. Right. I like him a lot more than I do David Fincher, and I, even his films that I don't really like, I, I've always respected. But back to the topic of the the possible tie. As far as uh, No Country for Old Men is probably it's probably closer to being perfect as a film. Mm-hmm. But I gave the number one slot to There Will Be Blood because I think it aims a little higher. And I also think it's more personal. Yeah. Um, the Coens are, are master craftsmen and mm-hmm. also very intelligent and able to get at things about characters. But every one of their films, and I love them. I, yeah. I love the Coen brothers. My favorite film of all time is Barton Fink. So yeah. uh, this, I'm not really ragging on them, but this is what made the difference for me. Every one of their films has uh, is, is distancing and academic in a way that is... Uh, that sort of removes you from the emotion of the characters. It usually has a pretty clear polish on it. Like, I mean, it is... I would say they're almost Hitchcockian in their perfectionism. Yeah. And There Will Be Blood is is not that at all. It's it's just a gigantic, uh, gorgeous, like, Paul Thomas Anderson feeling and thinking these things and then throwing his guts and brains onto the screen. Uh... Uh, I, I was amazed and blown away by There Will Be Blood, even though it has more flaws per screen time 
than No Country for Old Men. Yeah. Um, it, it, it meant more to me, and it hit me harder, and I found myself thinking about it more. Yeah. More a- afterwards. Um, and, and really just respecting the way that Paul Thomas Anderson asks you to go along with him. Yeah. The, the Coens guide you along with them because they're, they can. They're so good at craft yeah. that they, they can push you right. where they want you to go. Um, there Will Be Blood goes in directions that you might not want to go. Yeah. And you have to relax and let yourself uh, get into these scenes, particularly the uh, over-the-top, almost garish and horrifying third act, uh, <laughs> but in a great way. I yeah. mean, I, I, I can say things about There Will Be Blood that make it sound like I'm saying bad things about it. Yeah. But I respect every inch of this film so much. Uh, that That's why it's my number one. You know, when I think about it, you know, like the the best movies, the ones that are often referred to as masterpieces, are usually ones where you can tell even the filmmaker doesn't quite know where he's going. Uh-huh, yeah. You know, movies like Apocalypse Now and, you know, uh, like, you know, this and like Orson Welles, like, usually his better movies, for example, Chimes at Midnight, are ones where they are less polished. They You can just tell he's more invested in exploring this. He doesn't they don't know what they have to say completely. Yeah. They just want to do this because they feel like they absolutely have to. Yeah, this, and it, it, it's, I mean, I've always, I've always been one of those people who, who box when people say that uh, actors are brave for taking certain roles. Yeah. But within those rules, this is a very brave film. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll say this. This year was a strong year for obsession. <laughs> All right? Okay. Like, looking at my list here, you got your Sweeney Todd, you got your Into the Wild, you got your uh, Gone Baby Gone, There Will Be Blood, Zodiac, yeah. even No Country for Old Men to a certain degree. Um, just a lot of movies about characters who just can't get things out of their head and are driven by these obsessions, often to a horrible end. Um, sometimes, but not always. <laughs> um but uh, yeah, and I I saw it last night. I saw the Late Show, and uh, and I saw it alone. And frankly, I'm glad I did um, because it is a movie that just I feel like I would have ruined it for myself had I talked out loud yeah. with somebody about it right afterwards. You know, it's a movie that just I had to get my bearings on what I thought of it because I'm not even 100 percent sure. Yeah, and I think it's a movie that. Uh, I also saw it alone, and I'm glad I did, because you need to spend time with it. Yeah. Uh, because from person to person, the response to the film could be so different. It sure can. Uh, that you need to decide for yourself as much as is possible with, with, with a film as, uh, as, as large and... and uh, uh, I don't want to use the word vague, but uh, it doesn't come to a... You know, come, it has, doesn't have complete closure thematically. Yeah, as you've as you have said, like this is uh, a movie that all the things that you say in favor of it, somebody could say the exact same things against it. Yeah, and they'd have a point, you know. Which is why, like, you know, before, like, you kind of it's like cement. Like, you have to let it harden, otherwise somebody uh-huh. could come in and screw it up. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, you need to let your opinion solidify a little bit, otherwise somebody else could bring up some point and you're opinion is just shaky enough because it's that type of movie that your opinion all of a sudden incorporates theirs 
And so it really is just a, you know, I mean, it's about so many things, you know, and uh, I like the direction that it goes on religion and, you know, Paul Dano does an amazing job. Well, I wanted to add him to the list of, uh, like I talked about, there's all these sort of could be pretty boy actors. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, who we talk about, Casey Affleck, Ben Ben Foster. Yeah. Who else did I? I mentioned a third one earlier. Uh, I can't remember who now. Oh, damn it. Sorry. Oh, the the guy from Control. Yeah. Uh, and also, I mean, like, uh, I thought Ryan Phillippe was really good in Breach. Oh, yeah. This was a really good year uh, for young, very young men yeah. uh, giving breathtaking performances. And Paul Dano, was, I was so blown away. I, I had never seen, uh, what, Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys? He's in that, right? No, he's, uh, I don't think he's in that. He's Who am in, I thinking of? Uh, Is Emil Hirsch? Emil Hirsch. Right, There's another really great good performance. Into That's why I'm getting confused. Um, yeah, Paul Dano, um, I've liked him for a long time. He was in LIE, he was in The King, he was in Little Miss Sunshine, and uh, invariably... Okay, he, yeah, I had seen him uh, in LIE. Yeah. And Little Miss Sunshine, and... And, I, yeah, I liked him in those. Yeah. But... I, I think the thing, and I told you this, the thing that struck me about his performance in There Will Be Blood is just how physical it is. Yeah. Uh, even though he... He could be played in in a very sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, emo sort of way. Yeah, if he wanted to, but uh, but he doesn't. He 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 gives himself, and I'm sure having Daniel Day Lewis on the set probably inspires. uh, Oh, I don't doubt it. Yeah, uh, to give of himself this much, but it's uh, it's as fearless a performance as Paul Thomas Anderson's art is fearless in this film. Yeah, it's. the portrayal of, of religion, at first, it kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I'm like, you know what? It's like, for what few moments of sympathy we have for Daniel Day-Lewis, we have almost none for Paul Dano, except when he's getting his ass kicked in the mud. But, like... Watch it with the spoilers, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. Not that um, much of one, but still. But, uh, but what gets me is, like, at first I was like, oh, man... You know, my, my Christian instinct kicks in. I'm like, you know, we're not all like this. But then I realized... This is a movie told entirely from the point of view of Daniel Day-Lewis. It's as if he's telling his own story. Yeah, and, and the thing and is, that's how the, he views these characters as ridiculous. The, um, the tagline for this movie bothered me. Okay, or bothered me after I'd saw it because the tagline was "When ambition meets faith." Mm. And the thing is, I don't think Paul Dano is supposed to embody faith. No, I, I mean, think it's a, supposed to be a story about two hypocrites. Yeah, uh, with. Um, endless resources of ambition yeah. and delusions of grandeur. Yeah, there's. I will be. I'll be vague about this one with with Paul Dano. But there's a scene where he is he's called to do something that is a very Christian and you know it, inherently it's supposed to be a good thing, a positive thing, and he sees it as an opportunity to get uh, a small amount of revenge, and he does. And that's what he chooses to to do with it. And so, like his his own humanity and his own pride uh, enters into his faith to the point that his faith is irrelevant. You know, he's just a guy who is you know all flaws. And um, but that said, I mean, uh, Daniel Day Lewis is. I don't. I know you also don't like to hear to sound like you know a freaking advertisement. 
an absolute powerhouse performance. <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, it is a and just a huge performance. It's. I mean, this is like people have compared this to Citizen Kane in in other ways, and I'd say to a degree it is. But like, this is Charles Foster Kane. This is a Charles Foster Kane size performance. I mean, yeah. it is that big. Um, but again, like so much in this movie, it's idiosyncratic in a way that not everyone's going to be on board with. No, no. He makes some odd choices at times. Yes. Um, especially in that last act. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a movie that just, if you let it, you know, that's the thing, is if you are open to it and just let it overwhelm you, it can be just, it's what movies can be made of. It's just a an amazing an amazing experience in which you just feel completely in sync with the director with the actor with everybody involved and it's just yeah i mean it's it's my number 6 which should you know please don't take that as an insult uh-huh. it's an amazing film you know um man good stuff all right uh, uh, i think we're going to end up splitting this episode up really okay yeah, it's going to be really long um all right, so that's that. Uh, number one for you. My number one Sh- is drum roll. Imagined here. <laughs> this has been my, my my number one all year. It's yeah. there's no drum roll here. Uh, my number one has been and will remain uh, Ratatouille, um, which is uh, of course an animated uh, film, a kids film. Some would say, um, and it's uh, directed by Brad Bird, who did The Incredibles and he did The Iron Giant, and uh, and as you know, I would say. It is in no way similar to There Will Be Blood, but it, I will say this. It's not perfect, all right? It's not a perfect yeah. film. There's a couple subplots that I'm not completely on board with, and uh, and it just, it, like, it, it introduces them, but it doesn't really explore them as fully as I feel like it could have. Um, but its main theme, uh, the story, of course, is about this rat who uh, works with this young, naive, uh, would-be chef, and together they are able to make this amazing food and um and the rat is you know throughout he's work he's talking to his family and trying to get them to realize that he is not a snob just because he wants a better level of food you know he yeah. wants something good he's not a snob he just has higher expectations and he doesn't look down and at, he starts out looking down on them for mm-hmm. that if it, because they don't, you know, but he does try to help his brother into realizing this. And for the most part, he's kind of patient um, about it. But, uh, you know, and of course, in this case, it's food, but it could be anything. It could yeah. be. And that's art. why it's a movie that definitely speaks to people like you and me. Absolutely. Because I have, you know, I've dealt with that with family, with friends, people who are just like, you know, you don't like anything. And it's like, no, I just don't like crap. It's different. Yeah. You know what I mean? There is a difference. Some people don't like anything, as embodied by the character of Anton Ego, voiced by Peter O'Toole. Like, there, it is possible to carry this high expectation. Like, if you go too far with it and start to look down on other people as a function of it, you will become an elitist and a snob and a guy who view, who actually vocalizes. Like, he talks to the chef and he's like, he's like, you know you've been playing this game without an opponent. Like he literally views himself as an opponent Yeah. to, you know, like he, he embodies what many people think of critics, you know, think critics are. Um, but at the end, 
Well, you know what? I, I won't spoil that. But um, but it's just it really it's just such an uh, a lively and intelligent, I'd say, meditation on art and our response to it. You know, and how our response uh, can be a positive or negative one. Yeah. And uh, and it really just you know, and, and so it's not a perfect film, but it just I it was such it was so positive for me that I yeah. just. I I love the movie. I don't think it's the best movie of the year. It's just your favorite. It's I I just love it more than any, any other movie this year. And also, la- last year there was a, a movie called La the, the Lady in the Water, <laughs> which had a character played by Bal- Bob Balaban, who was That's a right. critic, and uh, he met a grizzly end. Uh, and that movie got, I guess, largely panned yeah. by by critics, and Ratatouille got largely praised. Yeah, both films. I mean, Ratatouille is not soft on critics. It, no. It really does take them to task. Yeah. Uh, but it does it in an honest and intelligent way. Yeah. And it also does it within a really good movie. And that's, I think, what... That's the key. I think cr- critics have thick have thicker skin than than uh, people like M. Night Shyamalan would give them credit for. Yeah. Uh, if you make a really good movie that it takes them to task, they're going to like it because it's a really good movie. Yeah. Um and and the fact that it doesn't just write them off, you know, like as as much as you look at the character of Anton Ego and think like, man, this guy is just a jerk. Like it gives him the chance. I'm not spoiling anything when I say this. Uh-huh. It gives him the chance at redemption. Yeah. You know, and that is something they don't give the critic in Lady in the Water, which me- which means M Night Shyamalan is condemning the critic, whereas Brad Bird is not. He's yeah. condemning what critics could be or what anybody could be, which is snobbish and elitist about their passion. And so, yeah, but Ratatouille is just a joyful experience, and I, I love it. So so uh, take that message about criticism, and why don't you send us your own top ten list? Absolutely. That'd be fun, uh, reading other people's top ten lists. And, of course, your responses to my including things like I Am Legend and Shooter on yeah. mine. So... Um, all right. Well, I guess that's it. Uh, I say that's it as if we didn't just waste an hour and a half of people's time. Oh, a bit more than that. But really? <laughs> About an hour 45. Oh, my gosh. Well, sorry, everybody. Yeah, we're going to split it up. Okay. All right. All right. We'll get you next time. Yeah, thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Happy 2008. Happy 2008.